Section eight of Stories from the Detectives Album by Waif Wanda, also known as Mary Fortune. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. The Blood of the Grape. Just as the sun was throwing his last beams low on the bosom of our bay, and the slow shades of approaching night were creeping solemnly over the wavy waters, the steamer Malvoisie was passing Cape Shank. There was a strong eastern to south breeze blowing, and the man at watch up in the Cape Shank lighthouse saw the steamer with interest as the signals were hoisted, and the telegraph operator sent quick-winged words up to Melbourne that the Malvoisie had passed the heads. As the steamer careened to the wind, and showed her sea-stained copper bottom to the watchman, in whose charge was the wonderful mechanism of the revolving light in Cape Shank lighthouse, the waves rolled round her, and the foam splashed up against her bows, as if angry that she was to leave the blue waves so soon. The smoke of her funnels drifted slowly away on the sea, and amalgamated with the low gathering mist, until you could not distinguish one from the other. Yet what a difference there is between smoke and mist! The steamer was a seabird that had swam twelve or thirteen thousand miles over the great solitary ocean to bring beating hearts and many hopes to this wonderful Australia of ours. Her bosom had breasted many fierce storms, her plumage had been ruffled and drenched by a hundred winds, her heart had beaten steadily through it all in quick panting gasps when the hard storm of the cape made her scud under courses and softly as the heart of a sleeping bird when nothing opposed her steady purpose and she swam to the north of lone kerguelen land she had beaten and overcome all storm and calm wind and wave and here she was safely within a few hours of her haven ah some of us would give more than we possess for the steady purpose and indomitable determination to reach our goal displayed by the seabird malvoisie it's wonderful said the watcher at Cape Shank, as in his huge lamp, with the wind making thunder around him, and his beautiful revolving apparatus going like a human life below, he watched the Malvoisie roll to and fro on the big waves, yet keep her steady course onward. She seemed so near that you could pitch a stone into her from the priest's cave, yet I dare say she is in her courses. But he said it doubtfully, and with a shake of the head, you see, our friend of the lighthouse was not a pilot. On the deck of the Malvoisie, many anxious eyes were strained up the bay, and many voluminous tongues were calculating the time it would take them to reach Melbourne. There were two persons, however, whose thoughts lay deeper than many words, one by nature, the other by repression. They stood together near a bulwark, a tall, strong, fair-haired man of about thirty, and graceful yet self-reliant woman of, say, twenty-seven. She gazed with a yearning, eager gaze onward. He looked at Cape Shank and the wonderful revolving light becoming each moment brighter as the darkness grew on the water. "'So we shall soon part, mademoiselle, I presume,' the tall, strong, fair man said at last to the silent woman, who gazed toward Melbourne. "'Yes, I suppose so, Mr. Morris,' was the rather absent reply. "'And are you glad to reach the end of our journey? I am sure I know I am. Such a life!' Who would be a sailor? Have you any friends to meet you, mademoiselle? No. But see here, that will never do, cried Morris, as with his hands in his pockets he turned suddenly facing her. I understand that even yet Melbourne swarms with, with, well, with people who will take all sorts of advantage of one. What can you do among such without friends? 
I have an object, she replied quietly. And an object may lead a determined woman to the very gates of death itself. He looked at her with a wondering expression on his shrewd, handsome features. She was looking again straight up the darkening bay, as though burning to be at their destination. I have never understood you, he said, as he looked at the firm, dark, sharply cut French face, though people who make such a long voyage as we have done in company generally get to know a good deal of each other's characters. But you have been strangely reticent, and I have tried to be a gentleman. Now, however, I have one word to say. If it is in the power of an honest man to help you in this strange land, you have but to ask Charles Morris, and he will give it to you. You are very good, was all she said, and in such a cold tone that impulsively Charlie Morris turned on his heel and walked to the farthest end of the quarter-deck. Well, now, he soliloquized, I am vexed about that woman. There's something evidently wrong about her. I mean, as to her being troubled. Yet she's so like an oyster that you might as well try to get her troubles out of her as though she were a bivalve. And I've not got the oyster-knife, you see. I wonder if Clements will be sure to meet me. I shall be like a fish out of water in this much-talked-of Melbourne, of which, after all, we know of far less than we do of the Sandwich Islands. Meanwhile, the lady known as Mademoiselle St. Clair stood still as though she had been a statue of stone, and not a warm, breathing, boiling, living vengeance. Her dark face was stony, her hands clutched hard the rail of the bulwark. She never saw that face of grand rock, where, by the continual hard winds from the thousand miles wide sea, the lime soda, as I have heard some wondrously clever people call it, is shaved as close as if a scythe had gone over it. She never saw the soft white patches of rock moss below. She never saw the narrow beach under the priest's cave. She never saw the eagle's nest rock, which the captain pointed out to interested passengers. She never saw that huge lamp where the watcher stood and watched the passing malvoisie above the wonderful mechanism of his revolving lights. She saw nothing around her. Her mind was occupied by the object she had spoken of. What was it? The malvoisie did not berth until the next morning, and when looking a perfect picture of English strength and manhood, Charlie Morris stepped to the pier. His hand was grasped by his friend Clements. Clements was a short, wiry, and rather gentlemanly-looking man, of, perhaps, Charlie Morris's age, and he was dressed in such an odd, loose style that Charlie stared at him, not being used to colonial attire, you see. Not that Morris himself had any pretensions to being a dandy. His attire was a simple suit of tweed, but then it was tweed which the first tailor in London had manipulated, and which, while being that of a perfect gentleman, gave full and easy play to his fine figure and perfect muscular development. "'Welcome to Australia, Morris. I am glad to see a schoolmate's face once more,' the Australian said, as he gripped the hand of his expected friend. Yet while he was speaking the sharp eyes were wandering over the numerous passengers landing, and among the luggage being landed. "'What the deuce is he staring about like that for?' thought Charlie to himself. "'I'm rather afraid it's true what we heard about colonial manners.' But he only said aloud, "'Are you expecting anyone else, Clements?' "'Yes.' I don't know. Where are you going to put up? I advise Menzies. It's your style. You'll find any cabman will take you there. And still the sharp eyes roved restlessly through the noisy crowd. Well, I'm blowed, thought Charlie to himself. But he said coldly, Good morning, Mr. Clements. I dare say I've got a purse in my pocket. I shall be able to house myself in Victoria. 
now come charlie don't be a fool cried clements seizing him by the arm as he was moving away duty is duty you know and you mustn't expect here the same preux chevalier sort of manners you meet with on the continent i have another duty to perform here before i can devote myself entirely to you believe me i shall be at your service in the course of three-quarters of an hour duty what do you mean clements in the name of all greenhorns didn't you know i'm a detective cried clements turning for one instant his wandering eyes on morris after that i'm blowed and then the sharp eyes resumed their watch a detective echoed morris and then he said no more aloud but to himself my schoolmate at rugby and poor old canon clement's son at this moment stepped on the gangway of the malvoisie a small slender figure in deep mourning she carried a valise of black american cloth in her hand and she had a dark foreign-looking stony-like face clements advanced quickly as she stepped on the pier and laid his hand lightly on her arm you are mademoiselle st clair he asked questioningly assuredly she answered haughtily take your hand from my arm sir i arrest you in the name of the queen mademoiselle you will please accompany me and he beckoned to two ready policemen arrest me the dark face flushed to deep scarlet may i ask for what i arrest you on warrant of a charge of forgery clements answered and i am bound to warn you that anything you may say will be used against yourself oh mon dieu was all she said as she fell against the rail of the gangway but indignant charlie morris stepped forward and addressed clements haughtily can nothing be done in this sir can no bail be offered none my dear fellow it is a charge of felony if cried morris indignantly i was such a one as you i would kill myself you are a hound a sleuth hound yes clements replied as his prisoner was handed over to the charge of the policeman and you might be glad of one on your track presently i shall see you soon charlie morris not if i know it said morris as he turned to see his first of melbourne good heavens before i'd come to that i'd break stones we are all liable to be desillusionné at times and the day came when charlie morris was desillusionné as regarded the detective force of victoria it so happened that on the morning of the arrival at the pier of the malvoisie two mounted men were getting ready to return to their stations the name of one was clem penoyer the name of the other pat frostbrook at six in the morning they were busily engaged in currying and otherwise getting ready their several horses and they were talking if you'd thought much of your leg said clem angrily you'd be only too glad to have the use of it and go back to your station me legs were a more use to me than ever yours were clem penoyer for i can shake em on a floor and you can't but for all that i'd give the tops of me best toes to stop in melbourne for the opening of the exhibition you're a fool simply replied clem as he saddled his horse of course i am and always was cried pat and what's more i mean to be one as far as wishing for diversion's concerned now have you a word to say to that clem penoyer the irishman's attitude was suggestive he had dropped the saddle and turned fiercely toward his mate with one fist strangely near poor clem's nose i have no coats to waste trailing around donnybrook fair clem said coolly and you're a fool pat frostbrook be dad i believe i am pat said as he reduced his fist to the necessity of saddling his horse but it's a good name anyway and a name that a king needn't be ashamed of at the same time clem penoyer 
it's a blank shame just when we've had a chance of seeing fourteen emperors twenty-four kings and sixty-four knights of jerusalem opening the great exhibition i'm to be pulled back like an old drag to tartura sure i thought we'd be all on guard there mount your horse and get out of this clem cried angrily whoever has been stuffing your foolish head with such ideas beats me but if i did know i'd choke him fourteen emperors twenty-four kings and sixty-four knights of jerusalem repeated poor pat as he stuck one foot in the stirrup if you say one more word i'll report you shrieked clem riding out of the gate it's a fine name that same penoyer pat said as he followed him but i'd rather be a fosbrook and see fourteen emperors twenty-four kings and sixty-four knights of jerusalem open the great melbourne exhibition shut up clem cried angrily as he saw approaching them a handsome with a decided intention of visiting the richmond depot devil a shut up then pat retorted sure my legs better anyhow of all the fools clem had begun when the handsome pulled up suddenly is this the richmond police depot a gentleman asked a gentleman dressed in london cut tweed and with a fair handsome face as he quickly descended from the vehicle yes cried penoyer abruptly as he drew up his curvetting horse close to the vehicle yes sir cried pat fosbrook and it's here i got my leg broke with the kick of a horse and was laid up in hospital for seven weeks i'm blessed if they let me put my foot to the ground all the time and more betoken my heel sore but i wouldn't care of course if they let me see the opening of the great exhibition fourteen emperors twenty-four kings sixty-four knights of jerusalem for heaven's sake get back to quarters fosbrook clem said as he dismounted excuse him sir i believe the man's mad what is the matter with him charlie morris asked a strong stalwart breeze-blown english figure with a cigar between his fair moustached lips the matter is simply sir that he's a fool naturally so being an irishman he had as he has told you a kick from a horse about six weeks ago and has been in our hospital he used it seems to be the best step dancer at tatura and it seems to have fallen on his brain now his folly has taken a turn and he wants to stop for the opening of the exhibition did you say tatura the young gentleman from england asked yes he is stationed there and is just on his way home to his station then i may say that my business here is accomplished said our charlie morris if you will be kind enough to ask constable fosbrook to permit me to accompany him to tatura i shall be more than grateful fourteen emperors twenty-four kings and sixty-four knights of jerusalem muttered pat but when he heard mention of tatura he drew up his horse close beside charlie did you say tatura sir well i'm your man sure i'm going there it's me station we will go together charlie said with a smile as he looked in the honest face of the irishman and it's quite possible that you and i might both yet see the opening of the melbourne exhibition fourteen emperors twenty-four kings and sixty-four knights of jerusalem pat said as he dismounted beside charlie begorra it's myself that's glad to have company to tatura can you dance a jig sir a rale irish jig i think i can constable it'll go hard with me if we don't get up a jolly good dance at tatura to the devil i pitch ye all clem and emperors and kings and the rest of ye have jerusalem pat shrieked in delight as he remounted his restive horse get in sir get in sir and i'll lay it all out for ye pat fosbrook was not half such a fool as clem pennoyer thought him 
His advice as to Mr. Morris's best procedure was sound. At about two o'clock of that same day, two horsemen were within as many miles as Totura. The horsemen were Charlie Morris and Pat Fosbrook. Now, sir, the latter said, pointing to a great southern slope of vineyard just gathering green from the warming sun. That's the place you're bound for. That's Totura Vineyard. I think I shall go straight there, Morris said. Mr. Smallburn expects me. I wrote to him by the last mail. Do you think it probable that Mr. Smallburn will be at home? Devil a one of me thinks he's ever far from the cellar, Pat said. I'd lay an even bet that it's there you'll find him. In the cellar? What do you mean? The place where they keep the wine, Mr. Morris. Oh, you'll soon know all about it. Well, here's the gate. Would you like me to escort you up like? Oh, that will not be necessary, thank you. And the township of Tatura. Is that it down there on the side of the hill? What a lovely place it is. Yes, sir, that's Tatura. And do you see that white place with all the green stuff around it? Well, that's the police station where I'm to be found most days of the week. For devil such a quiet place as Tatura you'll find in the colony, more's the pity. And do you see that brick house on the rise? Well, that's Vance's, the best drink, Mr. Morris, and the finest barmaid. And the place we are to have our dance, I see, Charlie said, with one of his bright smiles, as they pulled up before a low, broad, white-painted gate. Well, Constable Fosbrook, get up the affair, and only let me know when it comes off. Make it as great a colonial success as you can. I give you carte blanche. You'll give me what, sir? asked Fosbrook, staring at Charlie with his mouth open. Morris laughed a hearty, genial laugh. I mean, my dear fellow, that you can arrange it all and come to me for the money you want. Ah, bedad, I understand that anyhow, cried Pat jubilantly as he slapped his leg. And you may believe me, Mr. Morris, that I won't let the grass grow under me feet about that same ball. Begor, you're a brick, sir. But honestly now, Mr. Morris, do you think my leg's much crooked? And he turned out the said limb and looked wistfully at it. Honestly, I do not see the least difference between the two, replied Charlie. I only hope it is quite strong enough to enjoy our prospective ball. It's as sound as a trivet, Pat cried. Would you like to see a step, Mr. Morris? Be dad, if you would say the word, and I'll go down and give you one on the road. Laughingly declining the compliment, Charlie rode through the gate Pat opened for him and shut behind him, and they parted with mutual and sincere compliments. It may be well believed that to one fresh from the blue skies and thorn hedges of England, to ride up half a mile of avenue between trellises of lovely green vines, with the fresh air and budding verdure saluting his senses, and a sky blue as turquoise above his head, was a delightful experience to Charles Morris. Yet he was thinking so much of his old friend Smallburn, and so full of wonder at what change he should find in him, that he noticed little of the beauty around him. Soon he came in sight of the house, a pretty low stone house, with vine-wreathed verandas and porticos covered with a flush of roses. Behind, on the slope among the vines, were several other low stone buildings, one of which, though Charlie Morris did not know it, was the cellar. His arrival was observed, and a man came out to meet him, respectfully touching his hat as he approached. "'I am at Mr. Smallburn's place, am I not?' Morris asked. "'Yes, sir.' Is Mr. Smallburn at home? Mr. Smallburn? Yes, sir. Well, you can take my horse. If you will show me the way to Mr. Smallburn, I will go to him. I wish to take him by surprise. Yes, sir. 
are you the gentleman from england the master is expecting i am oh master'll be delighted sir this way if you please sir past the rose-wreathed verandas and the long low venetian blinded windows of the house around which the stillness of the sunny spring day seemed to brood and up toward the cellar with its thick stone walls and slate roof mr morris followed his guide the door of this building was open and the man pointed to it you'll find mr smallburn inside sir with interested and wondering eyes charlie entered the building long ranges of great casks on trestles made as it were aisles adown the building and the pleasant freshness of cool air and the rich scent of wines greeted morris as he entered wondering where he should find his friend he travelled down one of the aisles and before he had proceeded far he saw lying upon a couch the figure of a sleeping man it was a strange place to choose for a couch or for rest under one of the ventilators that admitted light as well as air and in the shadow of a huge cask that held easily its thousand gallons of the blood of the grape the couch was placed close to it was drawn a small table on which were conspicuous several bottles with short and long necks and a tumbler or two the gentleman lying asleep was not tall but broad-chested and strong-limbed he had black hair and heavy eyebrows and he lay on his back with both hands under his head morris stood and looked at the strange changes barely seven years had made in his friend when he saw him last in an english home he was a pleasant pale-faced young man of twenty-four one of the best oarsmen and cricketers of his county he found him a besotted-looking man of more than his age and with a hard ferocious look on even his sleeping face he moaned and muttered in his sleep and started and ground his teeth so that charlie felt it a charity to awaken him he laid his hand on smallburn's arm and slightly shook him the sleeper started almost to his feet at one bound and he trembled from head to foot like a leaf in the wind he stared at charlie as though he had been a ghost until at last his scattered senses collected themselves and he saw a strange gentleman before him good heavens how you startled me he exclaimed as he fell back into a sitting posture to the couch and wiped the big drops from his forehead i must have been dreaming you were indeed morris said quietly i thought it a kindness to awaken you smallburn poured out a great tumbler of wine from one of the bottles on the table and drank it at a draught then he pushed bottles and glasses towards charlie as he begged him to be seated pray help yourself sir you'll find it the very best blood of the grape i don't know what's come over me but i'm getting as nervous as a woman charlie thought he could guess and was deeply grieved but said nothing as he seated himself on one end of the couch and presently smallburn turned and stared into his face send i may live if it isn't charlie morris he cried i was only half awake you see and i thought you were some stranger welcome to tatura my dear fellow the welcome was hearty the grip of the hand tight the man's heart was not quite dead within him his dull eyes gleamed momentarily no doubt the sight of charlie's face brought with it some memories of his lost youth the two old friends sat and talked long of old days and old friends and gradually the questions were put and answered until they drifted more into personalities how is it you never married charlie morris blushed like a girl i was very near it a few years ago but she jilted me i shall never care for another woman were you so very fond of her then old boy i was caleb so fond that if it had not been for my good dear mother 
I believe I should have destroyed myself. For a woman like that? Why, she was not worth it, Charlie. I suppose not, but we can't help such follies of our youth. I suspect that all men are fools at times, especially where a woman is concerned. Yes, cursed fools, Smallbone said with energy. I have never but once regretted my marriage, but it has been every hour and day since I was such a fool. You, married, Morris said, opening his great grey eyes on his friend. Why, this is the first I've heard of it. Is it? I thought I had written of it. Well, it's nothing to be proud of, anyway. I made a mistake that has ruined me. Charlie's face looked, as he felt, truly grieved. He began to understand why his old friend lay under the shadow of the great cask, and why his hand shook like an old man's as he raised glass after glass to his lips. Of course, he was too thoroughly honourable to ask one question, but Smallburn went on. "'She is an extravagant flirt,' he said, "'and she's worse.' She married me for my money, and she's told me so a hundred times lately. She never cared one rap for me. There's some other chap at home that she's fond of to this day, and here she's never satisfied without a half a dozen men breaking their hearts for her. Is Mrs. Smallburn handsome? Morris asked absently. You can see for yourself, Smallburn replied sulkily. There she goes with her latest admirer. Bye! Blank, he added with a fierce clench of his fists and a lurid light in his eye. Patience has its limits, and they'd better look out. Charlie looked toward the open door of the cellar. A broad patch of sunshine lay among the unshaded vines, and through the vines and the sunshine, on a broad avenue, rode a lady on horseback. Her figure, in its plain, beautifully fitting habit of dark cloth, was perfection itself. But as her face was turned toward her attentive cavalier, Morris could not see it. As they passed to the cellar, the gentleman with her turned a quick glance within it, and then a woman's merry laugh rang among the vines. Smallburn ground his teeth again. "'Let us go in,' he cried, starting to his feet. "'We dine early, and I'd like to be about just now.' Again the long-necked bottle was taxed, and with reluctant steps Morris accompanied his host into the house. Once there, Smallburn himself showed Charlie to his room, and left him telling him he would come back for him in half an hour. At the advice of his friend Fosbrook, Mr. Morris had brought with him a small valise strapped before him on the saddle. A larger one was to come up by coach that evening. Pat had made him acquainted with the habits of Tatura in his own emphatic and not over-choice luggage, and he was aware that his valise would supply all his requirements. "'Dress for dinner, is it?' cried Pat. Dress when you get up in the morning, and undress when you go to bed, and that's all anyone else does up there. When Morris entered the drawing-room in his host's company, he found there only the gentleman who had escorted Mrs. Smallburn home. Mr. Smallburn made short ceremony of the introduction, and just at that moment a lady entered, a lady of twenty-five with a handsome, proud face, a haughty curl of the lip, and dark, languishing eyes that could flush fire at will. She swept her long train into the room, and paused to be introduced to the gentleman from England, of whose arrival her husband had informed her. Charlie Morris turned to meet his hostess, and lifted his pleasant grey eyes to her face. Then a sudden flush of crimson dyed his face up to the very roots of his fair hair. Mrs. Smallbone grew white as dead ashes, and staggered a little. Then she recovered herself as suddenly, and bowed to Charlie. "'I have great pleasure in welcoming Mr. Morris to Tatura,' she said. 
and no more, for her white, trembling lips refused to utter more. Caleb Smallburn, watching the two faces suspiciously, felt himself shudder as though someone were walking over his grave that was to be. What was the reason of Charlie's blush? What was the reason of his wife's pallor? It was but a wretched attempt at conversation during dinner, for all at table were ill at ease and consumed by some of the most powerful passions of our nature. If, at that moment, when they left the house after dinner, to return, with Smallburn's wish, to the cellar, one or other had spoken out the thoughts of his mind, all might have been well, but none of the thoughts were spoken. Charlie thought, I should like to tell poor Caleb, yet how can I? It is her secret, not mine. Smallburn thought, what is there between them? Ah, I'll find out. When they had smoked a cigar or two and drank some blood of the grape out of the long-necked bottles in the cellar, Charlie plucked up courage. If you wouldn't mind, Caleb, he said, I should like to ride over to the station and see Constable Fosbrook about that ball. I promised to pay all expenses, you know, and I shouldn't like to disappoint the honest fellow. Of course, you can have any horse you like out of the stables, Caleb said sulkily. "'But it seems to me that, considering you only came a few hours ago, "'you're in a blessed funk to get away from me.' "'Couldn't you come too?' Charlie asked, "'with a strange nervousness for such broad shoulders and strong muscles. "'Well, no,' a smallburn replied after a pause. "'There's a visitor too many inside. "'I think I'd rather stop at home. "'But don't mind me, old fellow. Go and see your policeman.' "'The permission was not very gracious, "'but Charlie was too anxious to get away from Tatura to be particular.' As he rode down through the vines and toward the township Fosbrook had pointed out, his big honest heart was heavy with a sorrow which did not belong to him, and he would have given a good many of the hundreds he possessed that it had so happened he had never seen Tatara. Reaching the police station, he tied his horse to the white palings, and opening the gate, entered. There he paused, for from the sounds within he learned his friend Fosbrook had company. He could hear another voice than Fosbrook's, but his new friend was still harping on the old theme. I wouldn't have missed it for a month's pay, sir. The likes of it'll never be seen again in this colony or any other. Fourteen emperors, twenty-four kings, and sixty-four knights of Jerusalem. There'd be a sight, man. Sure, if a man had seen it, he wouldn't want to see no more in this world. Oh, begorra, here's Mr. Morris. And the honest chap bounced from his seat to receive his most welcome visitor. Picture to yourself the perfect astonishment of Charlie Morris on perceiving that Fosbrook's other visitor was his old schoolmate Clements, and the present detective. Morris drew back as he was entering, but Clements started up and drew him in by the arm. "'If I didn't know you better than you know yourself, you great, easy, soft-hearted Charlie Morris, I should be offended. You wouldn't have minded me being a detective one bit if I hadn't arrested that lady-fellow passenger of yours. Now you needn't colour up, you know it's true.' If I had said to you, Charlie Morris, I'm not proud of my employment, but though I was a schoolmate of yours at Rugby, there was nothing else open to me, and I must live, in spite of what old Rochefoucauld said, you know you'd have been the very last to call me a hound, now, wouldn't you? We may easily guess what the answer of our big-hearted Charlie would be to such a question as that. So leaving him to try and discover Clement's object in following him to Tartara, and find out what had become of Mademoiselle St. Clair, as well as settle with Fosbrook all about the forthcoming ball, let us go back to Tartara. When the sun was hidden behind the western line of tree-clad hills, and the shadows of evening were deeper in the cellars of Tartara, Mr. Smallburn lay upon the couch where Morris had found him. 
he had seen his wife's friend depart and told such a piece of his mind to the said wife that she had trembled with a provision of terror to the bottom of her weak heart then he returned to his favourite retreat among the great casks of his beloved blood of the grape and resigned himself to the solution of that problem so interesting to him what secret is it between these two the long-necked bottles were very near the shadows were growing deeper he lay in his usual attitude on his back with both hands clasped under his head he thought the problem out with the fumes of the malvoisie in his brain and the perfume of the great casks around him the one under which he lay bulged out its great bulk over him would it have been better that it had burst and deluged out his life like poor clarence's in the tower all at once the problem was solved charlie morris was the man she loved a thousand times better than him in england i have it he cried aloud as he started convulsively to his feet in the growing darkness i have it what have you caleb smallburn a sarcastic voice asked so close to him that he fell back on the couch what have you got malvoisie hermitage Chirez, bordeaux pray share with a friend he dared not speak was it one of his own wine-born visions of some mocking fiend he trembled until the big drops grew again on his forehead and listened what not one word of welcome for an old friend caleb not one word are you dead you shall be dead some day you know ah it was some mocking fiend of his dreams if he could only catch hold of one of those long-necked bottles he would soon drive that away he put out his hand and groped in the darkness and his hand was gripped by another cold and icy as death with the desperation of terror he seized and held the hand and then a ripple of low mocking laughter rang through the cellar he knew where a silver sconce hung close to his head when it pleased him to smoke and drink there at night so still holding fast the hand which did not seek to free itself he struck with the other a match against the wall and lit the wax light in the sconce the wick caught gleamed and burned up there was silence in the cellar and then with a wildly beating heart smallburn turned and looked at his prisoner what he saw in the face of a woman whose hand he held made him drop the small hand as though it had been hot iron on the opposite side of the table stood a graceful woman with black hair and a dark complexioned stony face she was simply dressed in black carried a small valise of american cloth in her hand it was mademoiselle sinclair of the steamer malvoisie you he cried you yes i mon cher are you not glad to welcome your darling home mais non i suppose not since you had me arrested even before i put my foot on your australian ground but you see my dear you did not for i easily proved the forged cheque was a real one you had lovingly sent me all the way from france what do you mean he asked as he stared with eyes whose fury would have terrified another woman nothing of you at present mon cher save to let you know that when you are dead fair tatura will be mine it's a lovely heritage my love and it will be a pleasant change to me to find myself mistress of tatura may i say au revoir or shall it be adieu pour jamais he never replied but the look of fury in his eyes deepened and grew more lurid but mademoiselle sinclair was not afraid of him she laughed in his face kissed her hand to him and glided away in the darkness of the cellar as charlie morris returned from his visit to fosbrook just as night was falling a girl glided from the veranda and put a note into his hand 
charlie was a great coward so far as the fair sex were concerned and he would rather have met a shower of mitraille than have received that note he guessed from whom it came and trembled at what he saw before him it was his firm determination to leave tartarin on the next day no matter what a rupture it might occasion with caleb he read the note by the light of a stable lantern as he pretended to be deeply interested about the proper care of the valuable horse he had ridden it was short but like the writer firm as death i must see you alone it is quite useless for you to refuse unless you wish to render all the life of your schoolmate unhappy at eleven o'clock to-night i shall await you in the vines at the south side of the cellar charlie pushed the note into his pocket he looked wistfully at the horse he had ridden from town standing contentedly in his stall and he thought should he have him saddled and go there and then but it would look so bad and there was poor fosbrook's ball he went out and walked quickly in the darkness toward the cellar the light still burned in the silver sconce over smallburn's head and he himself sat upon the couch with a hand gripping either knee all the long-necked bottles were empty but there were millions of gallons in the long aisles of the cellar he looked up as morris came within the small circle of light but he did not first speak are you not well caleb you do not look well what is the matter i've been drinking more than's good for me never mind me but i do mind you old fellow rouse up and come into the air let me alone smallburn said so doggedly that as he had done on the malvoisie when his offer of service was so curtly received charlie did here he turned on his heel and walked away he had drawn out his handkerchief as he stood by the little table and he left behind him gleaming white on the dark floor of the cellar a scrap of folded paper caleb smallburn saw the object with stupid eyes but at last he rose lazily and picked it up he staggered as he did so and recovered himself with an effort he had no more idea of the value of that bit of paper than that it might be a memorandum of morris's yet it was worth a human life it was the note charlie had just received smallburn recognized the writing at a glance as he read it he knew what the devil had been tempting him all night for a blaze of fierce passion ran up to the roots of his black hair and almost grew purple as he once again staggered like a blind man for a moment the long rows of casks which were the wealth of tatterer grew like a dream to his eyes he could not see the light in the silver sconce or the silver gleam on the long necks of the empty bottles at last that terrible purple shade left his face and gradually he shook himself together there was not an echo of even a whisper in the cellar but he went out in the darkness and entered his own room by the window charlie morris strolled through the vines in the darkness smoking a cigar the perfume of which did not yet prevent him from inhaling the delightful aroma of growing verdure and fresh air he was determined not to enter the house without its master and we know in what terms he had been dismissed by smallburn it was growing late yet not more than ten o'clock and he was just tossing away his cigar with the determination of riding down to get a bed at the township when a woman's voice fell softly on his ear i have forestalled the time charlie I feared you would not meet me. Your fear was well founded, madam. I was just on my way to the stables for a horse. I could not stay another night under the roof of a friend whose wife has so forgotten herself. Oh, don't talk so, Charlie. Have you so entirely forgotten the dear old days? I have always loved you, and always will, and you needn't talk to me of a husband whom I hate, a sot, a drunkard, 
who was never in his sober senses from one year's end to the other, could one whom you have once loved ever love such a thing as that? Charlie drew himself away from her persistently clinging hand, just as the big moon rose roundly over the vineyard, and threw her cold beams aslant the vines. When the wretched woman had left her home for the last time, she had not seen a dark figure dogging her soft steps. She had not seen a shadow, darker than the vine behind which it hid, when she spoke to Charlie Morris. But the moon saw it as she rose, and she saw, too, a gleam of her own light on the barrel of a revolver. There was a report on the still air, a shriek, and an oath, and Julia Smallburn lay on the soft, fresh earth, a bleeding, dying woman. "'So much for you, traitress, and I have a barrel left yet,' shouted the murderer of Tatterer, as he took aim at the horrified Charlie. But at that instant the weapon was knocked from his hand, and he was felled to the ground by a blow from a strong arm. The blow came from the arm of Clements, the detective. The woman was dying, that was evident, even in the light of the rising moon. The bullet had penetrated her chest, she was beyond all human aid. Before they had time even to raise her head, she was gone. Where? Ah, what one of you dares to answer that question? They wondered why Caleb Smallburn never attempted to rise. He lay as the blow of Clements had felt him, with his eyes wide open, staring at the moon, and his breath coming in hard, quick pants. Fosbrook was there now. He was under Clement's orders, and he raised the vigneron from the ground roughly, and tried to stand him on his feet. "'Haven't you a leg another, you?' our friend Fosbrook asked, as he administered a good shake. "'But, faith, I don't wonder at it. Murther and villain! Stand up, I say!' "'I can't,' the wretched man said. "'Oh, what ails me! Oh, what is the matter with me? Take me to the cellar!' It was quite evident that he was ill. Strong spasms of pain shook him from head to foot, and made him writhe like a crushed worm. They carried him into the cellar and laid him on his favourite couch, where, with all the great casks of his beloved blood of the grape around him, he drew his last breath of the bouquet of wine. As the last spasm of pain died out of his unconscious limbs, a hollow laugh sounded in the recesses of the cellar. "'Be gob, you're all right, Clements!' whispered Fosbrook. She's here. Shut the door. Clements flew to the door and closed it, while Fosbrook seized one of the many lights some of the terrified servants had brought in, and ran toward that part of the cellar from whence had come that horrible laugh. They had not far to seek. Crouching in a corner of the cellar, among the long aisles of great casks, they found Mademoiselle Sinclair, with her black eyes blazing and her black hair wildly dishevelled. She clapped her hands at the sight of light and faces, and sprang to her feet. "'I'm the Lady of Tatura,' she cried. "'I'm the mistress of all the green vines.' "'The devil you are,' said Fosbrook cruelly. "'I told you she was mad,' Clements whispered, as he led her toward the couch. "'She was his wife,' the servants around whispered. "'She was his real wife, and he left her in France. "'Poor thing! No wonder she went mad.' "'Is that Caleb?' asked the mad woman. How ugly he is! Cover him up and bury him! I told him he would die, but he did not believe me. Ah, you pretty bottles! Ah, you cunning bottles! How nicely you swallowed the little white crystals in the dark! I am the Lady of Tatura. Yes, that was the secret. When one cold hand had been gripped in that of her false husband, the other had, in the dark, poisoned his wine. 
the last drop of malvoisie he drank had contained deadly poison alas to how many of us is every drop we are foolish enough to drink poison both to body and soul let us escape all the dread details consequent on the double tragedy at tatara and follow poor saddened charlie morris to melbourne in company with clements and fosbrook the latter had in charge the poor maniac mademoiselle st clair who is now in the yarra bend asylum and on the interest of tarley with headquarters he was permitted to remain in town for the opening of the exhibition he duly attended the same and was disgustingly disappointed where's the fourteen emperors he asked and where's the twenty-four kings and where's the sixty-four knights of jerusalem devil a one of me sees anything more than you'd see at any day in dublin ah my honest friend replied charlie you'll find out that there are better things in the world than emperors and kings or even knights of jerusalem faith i believe you cried fosbrook i had as fine a dance at the casino below last night as heart could wish for and every one told me leg was as straight as it ever was long may good fosbrook dance independent of kings or emperors and when charlie goes to his happy english home on the next voyage of the stout seabird malvoisie may time have soothed his sad memories of tatura end of story